0: Inflation is not, uh, you know, the same amount in every part of the world. In other words, your buyers, your customers, your prospects, buying power is has now shifted pretty dramatically.
1: That was Kurt Smith, the former chief product officer at Fastspring, responding to a listener's question during a live discussion we held on pricing strategies to combat stagflation. Stagflation is an economic condition in which high inflation overlaps with slowed economic growth and many global economists are seeing signs of it in 2023. In this episode, you'll hear tips on how to price in volatile markets, but the conversation also widens to include how to successfully enter new emerging markets. I'm EJ Brown, Senior Content Strategist at FastSpring. We help SaaS and software companies scale around the world. And you're listening to the Growth Stage Podcast, where we share stories from global SaaS leaders that you can use to inspire new growth strategies in your own business.
2: From the FastSpring side, welcome to Pricing Strategies to Combat Stagflation. Uh, Excited to have everyone in attendance today. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to our host, Tony Markov from the FastSpring side of things to get introduced, uh, and he'll get us rolling here.
3: Thank you. And hi, everyone. Good to have a chat today. Hope we're going to have a good, interesting dialogue. I'll get started with a quick intro to myself, and then I'll kick it to Kurt. My name is Tony. I have been part of the Amsterdam FastSpring team for the last five years. I'm the founding member, the first person in in our office. And over the last five years, I've worked with hundreds of software-as-a-service companies of different sizes, as well as companies that are focusing on the perpetual side of things. Within FastSpring currently, I own the enterprise segment of Vimea as an individual contributor. And at the same time, I'm also a team lead for the sales team here, managing a team of a couple of people helping us grow and helping us advance. Uh, So really, really excited to chat. And in those five years, I've had tons of conversations that are making me very excited to have this dialogue today with Kurt. So super pumped.
0: Hey guys, excited for the discussion. Kurt Smith, I'm the chief product officer here at FastSpring. I'm based in our uh, Santa Barbara office. Today, I'm actually in our Halifax office in Nova Scotia, finally getting some blue skies peeking out behind me after a bunch of days of rain, but excited for the chat. Yeah, look forward to digging in. I know Tony, you talk to more SaaS companies than even I do, so anxious to hear your questions on what's top of mind for people. And then hopefully folks in the audience can throw in some good questions for us and uh, we'll have a discussion because pricing is tough, particularly in a time like this with recession, environment, inflation, ripping, it's a complicated world.
3: So I have some burning stuff in here, which I'm really curious to know about, but let's pull it back a little bit before we jump into that. So Kurt, I guess what would make sense is tell us a little bit more about your background at McKinsey and Excel KKR. What I'm thinking about there is, you know, what kind of companies did you work with? And maybe even more importantly, what kind of lessons did you bring with you as you're now with FastSpring for a while?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, before I was the chief product officer here at FastSpring, I spent about a decade of my career as a consultant, as an investor in growth stage software companies, um, both at McKinsey and Excel KKR. You know, there I spent a lot of my time helping companies figure out pricing a couple of reasons why. Number one, you know, I personally found it really interesting. It's kind of the intersection between qualitative kind of psychology and quantitative math, right? Really measurable ways to understand and kind of break down problems. So personally, it's it's always been something that I've been drawn to and interested by. But more than anything, right? Like I am get really excited about helping companies unlock value. Whenever I was at McKinsey working with some of the biggest companies in the world, some of the biggest tech companies, Across sectors of the technology industry, or at Excel KKR, where I was working with growth stage software companies, pricing continued to come up as a main pain point for uh, executive teams and businesses really trying to unlock new value. So I think it's really an interesting insight that it's like pricing is always an important lever in a business, whether you're a startup and you're using pricing to figure out how to communicate value, or you're a more mature company and you're trying to expand your margins and realize full monetization potential, if you will. I've probably worked with close to 50, 60 software companies over the years on helping them think about pricing and come up with new strategies, tweaking their models, testing new things in a variety of ways. We can talk about some of those today. Everything from a startup all the way to mature companies, but really my sweet spot in where I've spent the most of my time is in growth stage software. Companies all around the world is you know where I spent about four years while I was at Excel KKR, helping those companies find product market fit and accelerate it. Uh, and pricing is a huge lever to do so. Happy to share some of the insights that I picked up along the way, and and see what is relevant to folks.
3: Growth stage, they're really starting to to see which lever should we pull to get extra growth. What I'm curious about is. My experience has always been within EU, EMEA, and in some cases, APAC. And then, I don't know you have also the perspective of the U.S. as well. So when you're thinking of the organizations that you've spoken to that are thinking about pricing, do you feel that, the let's say, European organizations approach pricing conversations in a different way or pricing strategies in a different way than American ones? Do you sense that there's a pattern there? I think the one... Big thing that
0: sticks out to me is, you know, just by the nature of the market structure in the U.S., a lot of pricing conversations I have are oriented around market share, right? We're trying to grow super quickly. We're trying to get as much market share as we can. I think that's generally driven by the fact that the U.S. market is very large, right? And a lot of growth stage companies are not yet thinking globally, at least in the early days. When I have conversations with European companies, I think some of the more tactical, complexities with selling across borders, selling into the U.S. market, selling intra-Europe, managing currency. Some of those complexities, they feel those pain points much earlier. Those are two very big buckets of pricing issues that people have to deal with, uh, but I think that's one of the key distinctions between the two markets. I think the other observation is, you know, if you think about just the evolution of the tech industry and the software industry in particular, the U.S. has had a bit of a head start, particularly with regards to kind of venture-backed institutional investment into growth stage and startups. Uh, Because of that, I think there is more of a urgency to sort of grab the market, right? Be the first mover. How do I price to accelerate the growth? Historically, there's been a little bit more of a land and expand type of a mindset, right? Where they're not trying to price overly aggressive in the early days. They just want users, being a little bit more aggressive in kind of innovating on models like freemium and PLG and free trial models, and you are starting to see that now in Europe. So, have you know did a swing through Europe when I saw you, Tony, and had a bunch of good conversations with folks. And I think that was one of my big takeaways: is starting to see a lot more European companies than I have historically that are thinking a lot more aggressively about growth and unlocking potential through pricing to sort of accelerate that growth.
3: Yep. And absolutely in the conversations I'm having as well, I'm getting asked a lot more about pricing than I have been in the past. And I think what I have spotted is a lot of thought leadership if i had to connect a pattern would be to the startup hubs of europe you know if you're talking to somebody in the netherlands let's say amsterdam specifically there just seems to be a different drive same as some spots in germany and then if you're talking about places like israel and tel aviv there that thought leadership is super huge as well so it's really interesting to see how that is getting reflected and then as you know that snowballs as well
0: yeah that's a great point i mean i learned about so many incubators accelerators that i was completely unaware of learned a bunch about some of the subsidies happening in France, uh, particularly in the city of Montpellier. Uh, Yeah, it's incredible. It's fueling a a really awesome resurgence and like energy in the tech community there. So I'm very excited to spend more time and and learn more.
3: It's nice to have you as sort of boots on the ground to kind of be a good touch point. Absolutely. So speaking of pricing, it seems to be becoming more and more of a present topic for a lot of Software companies, both in software as a service, but also not. And I know that recently you gave a talk at SASTA Europa over in Barcelona back in June about pricing. And it, as far as I know, it was one of the most well-attended of the entire conference, which is kind of suggests that you know what we're talking about is very relevant. So, what do you think is driving the interest in pricing today?
0: Some of that response even surprised me. Here's what I think is going on. I mean, I think one is pricing is really complicated it's particularly complicated in SaaS and software because we have very few limitations, right? When you learn about pricing in business school, you know, or in an academic setting, they teach you, okay, understand your costs, understand the willingness to pay and price somewhere in between. When you're selling toothpaste, generally speaking, that range is not very big, right? So pricing is generally not that complicated to figure out. When you're talking about SaaS, right? We're talking about, 80, 90% 80, 90% plus gross margin businesses. So you have tremendous amount of flexibility and range in terms of your cost. And then understanding the willingness to pay of your customer, it's really challenging. How do you do that? How do people quantify business value for your product? And that's generally speaking, something that I don't think people have a clear understanding of. So back to your question, you know, why is pricing top of mind? Why is there a lot of interest around it? It's complicated in in general, and it's really complicated in SaaS, and there's a lot of optionality and ways you can pursue it. And I think people get, you know, when you're faced with too many options, sometimes you get stuck even taking that first step because it is so daunting. So I think that's one thing is people are looking for, how do I simplify this? How do I think about it? What's the framework I need to apply? I think the other thing is, you know, look at the macro environment. I think we're in a recession technically. Um, I know the the definition is certainly debatable, but and and it's certainly not a consistent downtick in the economy everywhere in the world. So you have this really dynamic, complicated macro environment from a recessionary standpoint, and then you've got the inflationary picture. Inflation ripping generally everywhere, more so in certain industries, sectors, uh, and parts of the world. But you put these two things together, and I think people are sort of scratching their heads about what to do. And then I think the other point I'd say that I believe a lot of SaaS founders and and companies realize is, you know, pricing is just a huge lever for growth. Pricing is the way you communicate your business value. It is the primary way you explain what the business impact is of your product. And if you're not doing that well, it will stall your growth. If you're doing it in a very smart, articulate way, if you have a really clear value metric and pricing metric that links that value and makes it very real for your customers, it can really accelerate uh, the pace that customers pick up and try, adopt, and then scale with your product. It's a big lever. The macro environment's super complicated and solving this problem and figuring out how to do it optimally, is it's daunting. And so I think people are looking for some guidance and hopefully we can share a few things today that to give people some ideas on how to carry this back to their businesses and, and make good use of it
3: thing that I faced is the mentality of a lot of early stage organizations is, we'll think about USD, we'll think about Euro, we'll think about a couple of currencies and the rest, they'll sort themselves out. And mm-hmm. that shows um, a mentality towards those currencies and therefore countries and therefore regions, which they're they're kind of missing out on that level of mental energy you're spending towards it. So when you think of good examples and also maybe bad practices on approaching successful pricing strategy, what would one of each be?
0: So I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see people making is sort of jumping steps. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of pricing best practices out there. There's a lot of pricing models people can read about, consumption-based, usage-based. And sometimes it's hard to know, based on your stage, what you should be solving for and what aspect of pricing you should be thinking about. So I think one of the best examples of this is, people obsessing over uh, the price level of their product. Should it be $19.99 a month? Should it be $29.99 a month? And in a lot of cases, you're not really ready to dial that in. Because let me be very clear. The very first thing you need to be doing uh, when you think about pricing is making sure that your pricing model is an effective communication device for business value. Full stop. How do you do that? the best way to do that is coming up with the right value metric or pricing metric. What is your pricing model based on? Is it per seats, per gigabytes, per API calls? What's the what's the billing frequency? Is it per month, per quarter, et cetera? All these things have a massive impact on how your prospects understand and interpret the value of your product. In many cases, people haven't dialed that in just right. And so that's where I really encourage people to obsess over in the early days. Once you feel like you've gotten that right and you start to build and scale your business, you really need to be focused on the objective of your pricing model and more generally just your overall growth strategy. Are you kind of racing to capture market share? Are you trying to sort of increase profitability and expand your margins? There's a variety of objectives that are going to have really important implications on how you think about your pricing and so those two things are the, the place that people need to start. So I would just encourage folks, don't get too obsessed with dialing in the finer details of your pricing model until you're really clear about some of the bigger fundamental aspects of what your business value is and how it maps to your pricing model. Yeah. And going from there.
3: I mean, you have to build it on a on a very solid base as well. But I think yeah. value and, and communicating it through, through pricing is something that's gonna that's gonna speak to a lot of folks. Now typically the the moment where where I take over conversations and and you also sometimes looped in is once they've nailed down a base pricing that that makes sense and one conversation we've been having with a lot of organizations is, what are some pricing strategies that companies can apply in order to break into markets which are either a economically growing? maybe five years ago they weren't really interesting, but now things are changing or just volatile from a couple different standpoints so to give an example say you're a Canva or Miro or Evernote and you're trying to break into Latin America or Eastern Europe or even you know Asia Pacific so what kinds of new market or customer segmentation aspects should companies consider to find new opportunities in volatile markets or emerging markets as well
0: so two things there that i would sort of split apart but ultimately they're based on the same premise of really being clear about the objective of, and the business strategy. First, you need to understand the end market that you are targeting, right? Is it a global sort of what I would call a horizontal market? Meaning Canva would be a good example of that. You know, They're selling to users across every type of industry, big companies, small companies. There's not a lot of sort of Focus in who their ideal customer is, right? Very large, what we would call horizontal market. In that case, they have such a large market that they need to capture share. They need to get massive amounts of users. Extracting a lot of profit from every individual user for them, especially in the early days, is basically irrelevant because you're trying to get stickiness, you're trying to get customer loyalty, you're trying to get market share, and you're trying to grow super, super quickly. The second piece is understanding, is it a low velocity or a high velocity model? In a high velocity model, generally speaking, in more B2B context, you're likely going after a more vertically oriented uh, vertical. What I mean by that is, you're targeting a certain industry, a certain sector, and there the addressable market might be a little bit smaller. So you have to be really thoughtful about, ultimately, you have to have a plan to extract a decent amount of. Of margin per customer. And that doesn't mean you necessarily have to price super aggressively when you initially win a prospect. You could sort of land and expand if you have plans to build a product portfolio and sell more products to that customer, right? You can sort of expand your margin that way. But I think the broader point here is giving you a few examples like be really thoughtful about the structure of the end market that you're selling into. And then sort of start to back into how can I design a pricing model that's going to achieve this objective? You know, am I in a big horizontal market or am I in a relatively constrained vertical market where I need to be thinking about, you know, the profit margin per customer in the near to medium term, whereas in a horizontal market, generally speaking, it's basically infinite, right? So you can think about just getting to velocity faster, right? And so how can you price to increase velocity? What are the kind of the freemium and PLG type motions where you can just crank velocity and then ultimately that that scale will produce the business results that you want, uh, I think is a really important one. Other kind of innovative models that I think are really interesting and some of them to me kind of come off as a little bit buzzword-y because I think some of the principles come back to these fundamentals that we're talking about. But you look at things like consumption-based and usage-based. I think these things are, These are really smart models. Why? Because a lot of these software products today, they're creating new categories, right? Look at a Miro. Miro is generally, my guess, is very rarely displacing an existing product. So you are not only like educating somebody on this new sort of concept. And if it's a business, you're saying, hey, this needs to be a chunk of your spend because it's going to unlock this business value. They also sell, I'm sure, to individuals You know, who are using it. And so you're creating this category. And so they don't really understand what the business value is, very likely at the onset. They might be interested and curious, and they may resonate with the pain point you're helping them solve, but they don't really have an existing budget to spend on that tool. Miro is probably acquiring customers. It's the first time they're spending money on a digital whiteboard. And so, if that's the case, pricing at a very low level and then being smart about okay how can i increase my revenue per customer as this scales and so in a b2b context can you start by giving away trials or selling to one division of a company and then hopefully have that product sort of grow naturally as the company expands potentially expanding the usage into other departments of that you know of that customer that's where things like and it doesn't have to be just per seat although I'm a big fan of the seat model because it's very easy for people to just quickly estimate how much it will cost and then how much it will scale. But usage-based and consumption-based can be really slick tools to effectively create new categories. And in a lot of these product categories, you're really, at the early days, you're struggling to find that product market fit. And when you're finding that product market fit, the play there is err on the side of pricing too low because you need users, you need usage, and you need to learn very quickly. And so that's where I, I see some of these more kind of creative models being really effective. We're in the early days, in my view, of the SaaS industry broadly. It's really cool, all, all these new product categories being created. But when you're creating a new category, you know it's hard to get people to buy in. Some of these creative pricing models, Allow you to you know land and start with a customer at a lower price point, but then expand over time and kind of generate the revenue that way,
3: which I'm a big fan of. My mind is buying power and or economic buying power of markets. So specifically, Europe is a very interesting one in the sense it's not really homogenized. It might be the euro currency and in a lot of countries, but the buying power between Bulgaria, where I'm coming from, which is using you know, Lev and then the buying power of Germany is entirely different. So what is your view on tailoring pricing to the buying power of a market in order to penetrate that market better and maybe having higher prices in France where people have money and having lower prices in Bulgaria or some other great market like Poland where uh, we don't make as much. So what's your view on that?
0: You know, it's one of one of my favorite things of about getting to work with you, Tony. And, and when we get to work with a customer on something is like, just learning about the you know dynamism in the European market and a lot of the international, you know, SaaS companies that we work with. Like you say, a lot of these in markets are very different. So make sure you understand which markets you want to target, what their buying power is. This kind of goes back to the macro point around the economic uncertainty is variable across the world. Really understand that if you're targeting certain pockets, and ideally you are. And also just the inflationary environment. You know, The other aspect of what you're talking about, which is just buying power, generally can be considered through the lens of currency. That is a really clever way. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make sure that your price levels are at an appropriate point for the end markets that you're targeting and that you can differentiate to make it more palatable. Ultimately, the words that I use to describe that is the willingness to pay of customers in different markets. By the way, it's not always just geographic markets where the willingness to pay will vary. It could be different kind of personas or archetypes where that willingness to pay can vary. So there's other ways to sort of differentiate your pricing to effectively get more share. But it's a really clever way. And so on the geographic side, if you're selling across you know multiple countries, you know, you can differentiate your pricing by currency which is a clever way to, to sort of set levels that are higher or lower based on the buying power of that particular end market. There's other ways to do it if you're selling online in a more of a B2C self-service motion where people are buying straight off of your website, you can differentiate your pricing by IP address. So there's ways to sort of differentiate based on that buying power. It's an important consideration. And I think every single time I look at the opportunity size of differentiating and A-B testing the incremental share. Every single time I've done that, um, it's exceeded the expectations. So I do think it's one of those things where you don't want to do this in the first year of your company's business, very likely. But as you start to get more mature, as you're looking for new ways to unlock growth, right? This is one of those things that's pretty, I think, uncommon. And it's it's not obvious that the buying power and then saying, oh, you know what? I can price 10% higher in this market and I need to price 10% lower in this market because the buying power, the currency environment, whatever it is, the things that can do to your conversion rates and your customer acquisition can be pretty meaningful. You can get very real growth impact from managing this on a regular basis, right? And that's the other piece is, it's not something that is best managed ad hoc. You wanna set up the infrastructure to be able to evaluate this On like a quarterly, even monthly, in some cases, if your business is at scale uh, basis, so that you're constantly kind of tweaking and optimizing these things. I I think it's a really important play people can use.
3: Yep, absolutely. And that's something I've been geeking over. The last five years a lot it's one of my favorites that's why i'm asking it i think one of the first examples i picked up from it was evernote evernote is one of the first ones that went out and did the research and did the studying of various european mm-hmm. markets to figure out what are you willing to pay they had massive dividends from both reducing and increasing price in those markets they're one very good example for the people listening for somebody you want to study how they do things they're they're very interesting there now once you set up your base price, you're communicating value through it. Maybe you're playing around with certain you know, willingness to pay and other strategies, different pricing models. What is your view on different ways to test pricing within various markets or within various yeah. models? What, what are some best things you've seen there?
0: So, I mean, I think the first point to make on testing your pricing is like, clearly I'm a huge fan. I think it's very important. Pricing is one of those things where your pricing is never perfect. It's a never-ending journey. It's just kind of consistently trying to see a better outcome is the way to think about it. And how you do that, and by the way, it's because your market is consistently evolving, right? Your product is evolving, your customers are evolving, your market's evolving, your competitors are evolving. Nothing is static in this world. So you have to consistently have signal on what's going on and how you can tweak things to make it better. If you want to continue to improve and keep up or outpace your competition and capture more share and continue to grow. So that's the foundation of why testing and just generally iteration is so important. A couple of points. Make sure you understand very clearly your sales velocity, which is generally tied to, you know, if you're B2B, higher price point, probably have a lower sales velocity than something that's more B2C, self-service, lower uh, price point, higher velocity. The strategies on testing differ company to company, product to product, market to market. And just in that very simple kind of binary example, let's think about B2B. Higher price point, slower sales velocity. It's very unlikely that you're going to be able to run some type of statistically significant A-B test. You're probably just not going to have the sample to go out and run something. So what should you be doing? Well, you should make sure that you're running sort of qualitative tests around how you're communicating your pricing. Like that's the first thing to take away is like if you're in more of a B2B sales-led motion, make sure that you have that top track and your sales team is armed with a pricing model that clearly allows them to communicate. There's a fair trade here between monetary, financial, economic value and business value. And that communication device is the pricing model. Test ways to communicate that, test ways and even value metrics to use, and test ways to help your customers quickly and simply understand the total cost to them so they can budget for it, so they can forecast the increases as they grow. All of these things really, really matter. A lot of that testing and iteration though is a little bit more qualitative because you just don't have the sample and the velocity uh, to do something statistically significant, and that's okay. On the higher velocity side, and this is one of the benefits of having just more sample, is you can set up statistically significant A-B test. Now, to be very clear, there's a lot of ways to do that wrong. You have to make sure that you're thoughtful about it. And I see a lot of kind of pricing tests that when you really peel back the onion are not statistically significant. That is a bit of a pet peeve of mine. But if you have the volume and the sample, setting up an A-B test, my biggest source of advice here is, or piece of advice is, make sure you're testing one thing at a time. That could be, I have three tiers. I'm thinking about going to four. Well, that's one aspect, one dimension. So A-B test, three tiers and four tiers. Or I have this new feature. It's a great new feature. Should it be in the gold tier or the silver tier? Okay, great. A, B, test it in either tier, but don't A, B, test it in either tier with a different price point. That's going to create too much noise when you're trying to evaluate it. And so test one thing at a time and depending on your volume and how many you know, data points you need in order for that to be statistically significant. I mean, there's quick little calculators you can use online that'll give you a sense for statistical significance and what the sample is to be relevant. I love the idea, by the way, of having a champion sort of challenger mindset in the higher velocity motion. So if you've got a three-tier model, have a group of folks that come together every, every so often and brainstorm and hypothesize, like, what is our best idea of one change we could make to have an impact? Stack rank that list and start at the top and go test one thing a quarter. Add that feature to a different tier. Go from three tiers to two tiers increase a price increase the price 20% and look what that does to the overall impact those are some of the things that the best companies that i see do and then you know it's always great for me to see companies that i've worked with and i look back after a few quarters and they've evolved their model even more and so just continue to iterate continue to tweak it that's the way to get better consistently and that's the that's the way to continue to unlock growth
3: And you and I both know within Fast Spring, the companies that we've seen kind of hit the ground running and grow the most in 12 to 24 months are the ones that I was talking about. And they were just on and on and on about A-B tests and testing and iterating. I really second what you say there, that within those organizations, there's always, I call them the fire and ice people. So the fire person is the one that just wants to throw out ideas and challenge and approve. And then the ice person is the one making sure that the methodology is correct. And when you have those two, that kind of leads to to a lot of growth. Yeah. So on that, one topic I wanted to pick your brain on because I, I saw all the news come through about a month was in the market, Slack increased its pricing for the first time in nearly 10 years, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And ironically, I was doing my best not to Slack you about it just to keep the question fresh for this. But I've done a little bit more research on it because I got curious and, and this price increase seems to be coming after Google announced last March that its cloud offering will, will also be priced higher starting this October, and then um, Microsoft as well last year already announced there's going to be significant increase into the SaaS line. So Slack really isn't alone in this. So from their standpoint, from what I read, uh, this price increase is all based around value. right? Our product has been getting better. We're going to increase the prices. There is no specific mention around this change coming now because of inflation. With inflation expected to reach, I think at this point, it's nearly 10% in the US and UK this year, and it's not very dissimilar in Europe. What is your view on what may be driving Slack's price adjustment here?
0: Hard to sort of hypothesize on the um, motivations, but they're a for-profit business. And so uh, assuming it it is to increase their revenue. Yeah, I think you touched on a couple of really key points. I think there are some things that that stood out to me um you know first off i thought the blog post announcing this change was was really well written i think it's a great case study for folks looking for how to communicate a pricing change and something you said tony i think is exactly right you know they didn't hide behind oh we're we're doing this to combat inflation our employee costs and our our internal costs have gone up so we have to pass that through or customers don't care like they don't care <laughs> they don't care i mean I'm sorry to say, if you don't know already, now, you know, like they don't care about your problems. You have to frame it in their terms. And I think they do a really nice job of communicating it on a customer's terms. What does a customer care about? I think that's kind of point number one. The other thing is, so they they went from the free plan being limited by number of messages and gigabyte storage to being limited by 90 days. Uh, You used to be able to have free access up to 10,000 messages and up to five gigs of storage, now it's 90 days unlimited, but then after 90 days, you lose that history. So I think this is a, a really clever and a smart way. And actually something that I had sort of scratched my head about a few times, which is, I'm not exactly sure how I'm supposed to estimate when I'm gonna hit a 10,000 message limit. And I think they even acknowledged it in the blog post, right? So when you're thinking about your value metric, and in this case, it's effectively, you know when does the free tier expire? It has to be linked clearly to value. So in my mind, you know, messages are probably pretty linked to value. So that it's not terrible on that dimension, but it also has to be when done well, simple and estimatable or forecastable because your customers need to understand, you know, how far will this take me? When will I run out of this thing? How much will it cost me next year? Of course, these are questions that they're asking themselves in the back of their mind. And 10,000 messages probably hard for many people to wrap their heads around in terms of is that going to happen next month or tomorrow? You know, depending on the size of your organization, that's a tough thing to understand. And the 90 day history thing to me is like a, just a clever little pivot on that, which is, hey, I'm going to reduce your mental load here and I'm going to make it really easy on you. It's 90 days. So I think that's one point. The other one is the increases that they made are in the range of just under 10%, I believe feels appropriate to me I think in general what I typically see in low inflationary environments is anything from five to ten percent increases that seem to be very palatable for customers in this day and age I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't do something higher because as we know that's probably barely covering the cost of inflation to the extent that's a factor for them but you know I would generally tell folks you know think about something five to fifteen percent. Every time I've seen a 5 to 15% kind of, you know, standard price increase, the amount of churn and the customer noise that comes back from that is generally under what is expected. And so just a little bit of my pattern recognition that feels to pass the sniff test of what the market will digest. I think it's always helpful when your competitors do it before you. <laughs> You're the last ones to do it, they kind of paved the way, so it felt like a pretty low-risk move, you know, on their part. The other thing they do really brilliantly in that blog post is remind people of the value, right? So they've got the nice little timeline with innovation throughout history, all the features. Again, pricing, it's a communication mechanism to explain your business value. Never miss an opportunity to do that. And I think they did that well. Yeah, it's a pretty good example. I'm glad you brought it up.
3: Slack is is becoming more and more interesting as something to study as well. But since their acquisition by Salesforce, I think they reported their numbers recently, and they're just smashing it. Which is again part of it is is that thought leadership which is coming through. Yeah. On the inflation piece, and this is this is kind of my last question, and I'll I'll kick it off to to Matt. Yeah. How would you advise an organization these days to to bake inflation into their pricing and to approach this situation that we all these organizations are in right now?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. There's a few things that f- people should be thinking about. First is, we touched on it a little bit, but how are you pricing differently across industries, sectors, or geographic markets? And how might you need to tweak that based on how inflation is moving? Um, you know, Inflation is not the same amount in every part of the world. In other words, your buyers, your customers, your prospects buying power has now shifted pretty dramatically. So make sure you're getting your heads around that. You can do an ad hoc price change, but ideally what you're doing is you're setting up a little bit of a process and a little bit of an infrastructure to tweak that on a regular basis. Quarterly or annually, how can you come back and revisit some set of data or peg to a set of indicators so that you can tweak pricing based on ultimately the buying power of your customers? and to just connect the dots, the buying power of your customer affects their willingness to pay. And that's ultimately what you're trying to do when you figure out pricing level, right? How high, low the number exactly that you're pricing. So there's, you know, certain industries, oil and gas, for example, where, where inflation has moved a lot more dramatically than other industries. And so make, if you're selling into those industries as more of a in more of a B2B context, make sure you understand those dynamics. In more of a B2C high-velocity context, you might be selling more globally. Country-level, currency-level, uh, setting pricing you know, is really important to protect your kind of growth profile. Another thing that, that you see companies do that can really help, sometimes this happens by accident, can you base your pricing model? Consider if you can base your pricing model and your, and your pricing metric around something that is naturally, inherently inflation-protected. This is something where if you're pricing based on a percentage of your customer's revenue or a percentage of something or tagged, you know, attached to something where when your customer's, you know, volume increases because of inflation, you get that natural lift. That is really, you know, one of the most clever and the easiest ways to make sure that you're, you know, you're protected there. Consider that I think is, is definitely something to, to think through. And the other thing that people do is they add some type of inflation adjusted surcharge. You see this in airlines, Uber adds a fuel surcharge, right? As these kind of unique increases in your costs go up, if your customer has a clear understanding for, hey, you do have very high cost to deliver this service, which is not always the case in software. I get it. This might not be a a relevant point for many people, but it is something to think about if you do have some hard costs that have increased for your customer. Not to contradict the earlier statement that I mentioned around Slack, which is in general though, your customers have a hard time caring about your own costs. So be careful with that one. And I will even say, I don't think anybody's ever seen a fuel surcharge from an Uber or an airline ticket and felt, <laughs> felt okay about that. But in certain cases, it's it's essential for survival, right? That's what the the Delta CEO would s- says on an earnings call. It's like, if we didn't do this, you know, how much of that, I believe, I'm not sure, but that's what they're saying. They're saying, this is, you know, this is existential for us, right? These, these types of costs. And in that case, people want the product. So they suck it up.
3: This is super, super valuable. I mean, you know me, I, I can keep going for another hour easily, but uh, I like to kick it off to Matt uh, to get some, maybe some questions from the, the folks that are listening.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tony. And I got to say, there's a lot of chatter going on in the global SaaS leaders community on our side. And you must have had a, a little sense of, of what people were talking about, Tony, because there were a lot of questions around inflation specifically, but specifically how to test those. And, and I think you both did a good job answering those. I, I do want to hit on two, though, that maybe offer a little bit more insight or, or a chance for Kurt to expand. So related to how inflation impacts different markets. And this goes back to, you know, the the inflationary topic. So related to how inflation impacts different markets or industries differently, what does that look like practically, Kurt? Um, Are you talking about pricing products differently related to the volatility of those markets they serve or something else entirely?
0: Yeah, good question. So again, just to use B2B versus B2C or low velocity, high velocity as an example. Every product and market is going to be slightly different. So make sure you think about those unique aspects, but I'll just use those two examples as a way to think through how this could vary in a B2B sales led or lower velocity model. You know, you're generally pricing or setting prices on a per deal basis. It's a little bit easier to say, okay, I know this customer is in this industry that's been hit really hard with inflation or has benefited from inflation, right? If you're selling into oil and gas, you've got a B2B software that oil and gas companies use. Wow, you've got probably a pretty solid budget to sell into. Other industries might be struggling a little bit more. So in that case, very explicitly, I would sit down with your sales team. I would think about how to to set up, look, we're now not discounting past this point, or we're actually just increasing all new deals 10% what's the new pricing floor and setting that potentially by industry, by industry, country, by country. And one of those inputs will have to be inflation. Again, you're just trying to understand buying power and the impact of inflation on that buying power and willingness to pay on a higher velocity model. This is where you need to instrument it. You do need a little bit of infrastructure to be able to say, Hey, when this prospect comes in, you know, from this IP address, or when they look at my pricing page based, you know, from this, IP address or in this currency, yeah, I'm actually going to show them a higher or a lower price based on sort of the analysis that I've done and my belief about their willingness to pay. Um, So very tactically, you want to price differently for different prospects to do this really well. And then ultimately, you do want to test your way into those right levels, depending on how much velocity and sample you have, like we discussed. But that's the way the best companies in the world are doing it.
2: That's great, and I think it leads into this last question too. And it, it, I can't tell if it's coming from potentially a FastSpring user or someone in the market. But speaking about iterative pricing or testing, you know, how does FastSpring's platform support this, or, or even a merchant of record mentality support the ability to price globally?
0: Yeah, Tony, make sure I don't leave something out here. But I mean, I think just conceptually, the the model that FastSpring deploys for customers is we're going to give you the full infrastructure to price and do checkout everywhere in the world. So because we host your pricing, we can localize that pricing based on IP address, based on currency. We can localize that pricing through our API on your marketing page. We can also localize in the checkout. One of the real benefits and the unlocks in using a platform like ours is you have a a single source of truth for your pricing. And so some of what I've talked about today can be a little bit tough to manage because you've got got a spreadsheet that helps you understand how should I set price levels. Then you've got a developer who's going to code that into a web developer that's going to code that into their marketing page. Then you've got somebody else controlling the product catalog that spits out a Stripe or PayPal And so you've got like four or five different systems and you might have an ERP or an accounting system where you got to reconcile this stuff. You might have four or five different systems. If you wanted to say, oh, wow, I can increase price to my oil and gas clients or to my customers in a certain geography, I can increase that price 10% or I want to decrease that price 10% to see what it does to conversion rates. So quite simply, We've got the tools to to localize price based on currency, location of the prospect. Yes, uh, a lot of people do. We can do things like price beautification. A lot of those tactical tools we've got sort of baked in, which is nice. But I think the bigger unlock is more conceptual around having a single source of truth. You got to make a change one place. And all of a sudden that gets permeated across all of your channels. And by the way, if you're doing B2B and B2C, you have a sales led motion and a self-serve online Checkout, same place, right? Single source of truth there. What did I miss, Tony, that you see people benefiting from?
3: No, you nailed it. To me, it bleeds into also testing. It's incredibly difficult to test if you have an ecosystem of a Frankenstein solution in to do this because there's too many involvements from too many departments just to do a test, just to make a change. And so many times you and I are talking to companies that are either doing it very limited way or they're doing the old school subdomain, US, EU, AU, and all those kinds of things. So (laughs) relate to a point that you had in the beginning, it shocks companies, it freezes companies as thought to do this. Because as soon as you start trying to think about, oh, what could we do and get excited about it, then you think about the project internally, you have to start to make that change. And that typically means getting your devs and engineers out of product and into this testing thing. And nine times out of ten, companies are going to prioritize product, which then kills your testing capabilities. And FastSpring removes that piece. You can test very easily and freely without having to think about involving too many people into this process.
0: Great point.
2: Yeah. That's great. We we appreciate it. And, and I got to say, community was was great today. Great chatter and, and questions coming in from that side. I, I think that wraps it up from the questions I've seen. So we appreciate everyone for attending. Tony and Kurt, thanks for your expertise and insights. We appreciate the time.
0: Thanks, Matt. Good to be with you guys.
2: Thanks, everyone.
3: See you. Bye-bye.